0: CHAPTER SEVENTEEN AND EIGHTEEN OF WHEN SHADOWS DIE BY E. D. E. N. Southworth. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY Bridget GAGE. CHAPTER SEVENTEEN. ON BOARD THE PRIZE. Soon after dinner, the Earl and the Squire left the hotel for the ship. They took a street-car that ran from Georgetown to the Navy Yard Gate. There they alighted and entered the yard, past the officers' quarters, past the workshops and the ship-house, and went down to the waterside. As they neared it, they saw an officer in naval uniform standing with his back toward them, and his gaze directed toward a boat, rowed by six men, that was swiftly coming toward the shore. Mr. Force quickened his steps, and laid his hand on the arm of the man, whom he had recognized as Lee. The latter, turning quickly, started joyfully, and held out both hands, exclaiming, "'Uncle Abel!' "'Lee, dear boy!' cried the squire, seizing the youth's hands and shaking them cordially. YOU HERE, WHAT A SURPRISE! HOW GLAD I AM TO SEE YOU! I THOUGHT YOU WERE IN EUROPE. WHEN DID YOU RETURN? HOW ARE MY AUNT AND COUSINS? AND HOW IS ODALITE? AND— SOFTLY, LEE, SOFTLY, DEAR LAD, ONE THING AT A TIME. WE HAVE JUST ARRIVED FROM EUROPE, AND WE ARE ALL WELL. AND HERE IS A FRIEND OF YOURS, WHOM YOU ARE FORGETTING, SAID THE SQUIRE, TAKING THE YOUNG MAN'S ARM AND LEADING HIM BACK TO WHERE THE EARL STOOD. LORD ENDERBY, HOW GLAD I AM TO SEE YOU! THIS IS ANOTHER JOYFUL SURPRISE! You are looking so well, too. Quite recovered your health, I hope, said Lee, cordially shaking the hand the earl had given him. Quite recovered, thank you, replied the latter. Where are you stopping, Uncle Abel? We are stopping at the old place where we boarded six years ago, when we first came to Washington, and we have been following you about for the last twenty-four hours, replied Mr. Force. And to think I have passed that hotel at least a dozen times within a day without knowing that you were there— WHAT A SURPRISE, AND YOU SAY ODALITE IS QUITE WELL? ODALITE AND ALL ARE QUITE WELL. I AM SO GLAD TO HEAR THAT, AND TO KNOW THAT THEY ARE all so NEAR. WHEN CAN I SEE THEM? AS SOON AS YOU PLEASE. IT WILL DEPEND ON YOURSELF. THEY HAVE BEEN WAITING FOR TWENTY-FOUR HOURS, MOST ANXIOUSLY, TO SEE YOU. WHAT A SURPRISE. I CANNOT GET OVER THE SURPRISE. THERE IS THE BOAT, UNCLE ABEL. WILL YOU AND LORD ENDERBY RETURN WITH ME ON BOARD THE SHIP, AND SPEND A FEW HOURS WITH ME IN THE CABIN WHERE WE CAN TALK? "'Lee inquired, as the boat touched the wharf, and the rowers laid on their oars. "'We came down here for that very purpose,' replied the squire. "'Come, then.' "'The three gentlemen walked down to the water's edge and entered the boat. "'The sailors pushed off, turned and headed for the Argent. "'It was a pretty view, the sun had just set, and the western sky was aflame with the crimson "'afterglow, which was reflected in the water.' The full moon was rising like a vast globe of gold above the gray eastern horizon. In the distance before them was the green and wooded shore of Maryland. Midway of the river lay the Argent at anchor, reflected clearly and duplicated distinctly in the water below. They soon reached the ship and stood upon the deck. A young midshipman saluted his superior officer. Lee introduced him as Midshipman Franklin, exchanged a few words with him and then took his friends down into his own cabin. This was quite a luxurious furnished place for the cabin of a man of war, as the pirate ship seemed in a small way to be. An Axminster carpet was on the floor, and blue satin damask curtains before the berths, blue satin damask coverings on the chairs and sofas. A marble-topped round table stood in the center. A marble-topped sideboard, with silver stands for decanters and glasses, stood at the end opposite the companionway. "'Lee drew chairs around the table "'and invited his friends to be seated. "'Then he went to the sideboard "'and brought forth a bottle of old port wine "'with wine-glasses "'and a box of choice Havana cigars "'with wax tapers and putting them on the table "'exclaimed for the fourth time, "'What a surprise! "'I shall never get over the surprise!' "'You talk of surprises, Lee,' said Mr. Force, "'when they had all had a glass of wine around "'and had lighted their cigars.' "'You talk of surprises, but you ought to have grown hardened to them by this time. "'No one could ever have had a greater one than you had when you found in the pirate captain "'and his mate, your old enemy, Angus Anglesea, and your old friend, Roland Bayard. "'You may well say that, uncle, but I do believe it was the sight of my old foe that put the devil "'in me that day, and made me utterly reckless of my life in that fight. "'We have all read of your heroism in action, Lee, my dear boy.' "'and we are proud of you,' said the squire. "'It wasn't heroism, uncle, it was diabloism. "'If ever the devil got into mortal man, he did into me that day. "'And it was all at the sight of Anglesia. "'No matter, the papers are full of the brilliant action, "'and you are the hero of the hour. "'Of the hour, you are right, uncle, of the hour. "'In these days of heroes, on both sides mind, uncle.' "'No one man, whatever his deeds, could expect to hold public attention for a longer time. "'But, indeed, and there is no mock modesty in what I say, I have no merit. "'I was more mad than brave in that action. "'Your captain, in his dispatches to the department, puts the case in a better light. "'But let that pass for the present. "'Do you know who the pirate really is?' demanded the squire. "'No more than that he is Captain Silver, known to us as Colonel Anglesea. said Lee." He is neither entitled to the one name nor the other. "'Neither Silver nor Anglesea. Who is he, then?' demanded the young commander in surprise. "'Enderby, dear fellow, you who can speak with authority. Tell Leonidas who the man really is.' The earl, thus entreated, turned to the young officer and told him the story of Bern stookley as it is already known to our readers." Lee listened with the closest attention, and at the close of the narrative drew a deep sigh of relief and breathed forth a fervent thanksgiving. And so you see by what Enderby has told you, that the rascal has not now, nor ever has had, the slightest claim on the hand of Odalite, who is now, and always has been, perfectly free. There is not even any need to seek the aid of the law in her case," said Mr. Force. "'Thank heaven! Oh, thank heaven!' again fervently exclaimed Lee." Then, after a pause, he asked, "'Uncle, when can I see Odalite?' "'As soon as you please, my boy.' "'I wish I could see her to-night. But to-night duty holds me here. Franklin, my second-in-command, has gone on shore for the first time to see his family, who reside here, and whom he has not seen for three years. So I cannot get off to-night. But early to-morrow. How early may I see her to-morrow? Come and breakfast with us at nine to-morrow. That is about as early as we can manage.' I will go. And now, Lee, tell us about Roland Bayard. How comes it that he is in the uniform of the pirate's mate? How comes it that he is brought here as a prisoner, instead of as a rescued captive? The countenance of the young man fell. All the joyous life died out of it, and he murmured, I had forgotten. In my own selfish joy I had forgotten. Forgotten? What, Lee? I had forgotten Roland's position. Oh, Uncle Abel, it is a most cruel one. "'Tell me one thing,' sternly demanded Mr. Force. "'Was he Silver's mate?' "'I do not know.' "'You do not know, Lee? What do you mean by that? Surely you must know.' "'Indeed I do not, Uncle. After the fight was over, and when the two prisoners were placed under my charge on board this ship, and she was manned by a part of the crew from the Eagle, and I was ordered to take her home, when we had set sail, and were well on our way, I went to see Roland to ask him some explanation of his presence on board the blockade-runner.' "'He was not known there as Roland Bayard, but as Craven Cloud. "'I found him alone, for the two prisoners had been confined separately. "'I found him moody to the verge of melancholy madness. "'I told him how grieved I was to find him there, "'and asked him to tell me how it happened when he had left Captain Grandier, "'whether he had joined the Navy and had been captured in some action. "'And what did he reply to all these questions?' inquired Mr. Force, "'seeing that Lee paused in his narrative.' Not one satisfactory word, he told me that fate had brought him there, and that he could tell me no more. And though I plied him with questions, and appealed to him to answer them in the name of our lifelong love for one another, he remained obdurate. He assured me that he could not satisfy me. And he never did? He never did. But one day he told me the reason why his tongue was tied. And what was that? It was a terrible revelation, uncle, a terrible revelation. "'But it accounted for everything that was strange in Roland's life and conduct,' replied Lee, still shrinking from the utterance of what he had to say. "'Well, well, my boy,' demanded the squire. "'He told me that Captain Silver was his own father.' "'Good heaven!' exclaimed the Earl. The squire was silent for a moment, and then said, in the most emphatic manner, "'I don't believe it. It is not true.' "'Oh, sir, it was true, too true.' he had every proof of its truth therefore you understand that poor roland if he was a prisoner among the blockade runners and a witness to deeds even more unlawful and more criminal could not open his mouth with explanations that might be fatal to captain silver the scoundrel is no more roland's father than i am no not by an infinite distance for i have been a father to the boy ever since he was a baby and i know that scoundrel is nothing to him i know the reason why he told such a falsehood to the young man it was to get him into his power and seal his lips. Did Roland, for instance, tell you how he came to be separated from Captain Grandier and to be on board the blockade runner, or rather the pirate as she really was? No, sir, I explained to you that he would tell me nothing but that fate had brought him there. Of course. Then I will tell you. Captain Grandier's ship, the Kitty, was taken by the pirate Argent about six weeks since only— Her crew were put into open boats, and sent adrift to sink or swim, find land or perish, as fate might will. Her two officers, Skipper Grandier and Mate Bayard, were taken prisoner and brought on board the Argent, while a part of the pirate crew were sent on board the Kitty to take her, with her rich cargo, to some port, heaven knows where. That is how young Bayard came on board the pirate ship. "'Is it possible?' exclaimed Lee, in amazement. Yes, and from the time the master and mate of the Kitty were captured by Silver, they were never allowed to meet. Roland, who had been wounded, was kept below in the cockpit. Silver told Captain Grandier that Bayard had decided to take service with him, and did not wish to see his old captain for fear of unpleasant words. Silver was near the English coast, and he sent a boat ashore at night, and landed the old skipper on a remote beach in Cornwall, and left him to find his way to London as best he might. "'But how did you find out all this, Uncle Abel?' inquired Lee, unable to get over his amazement. Grandier went up to London, on a third-class train, found his correspondence, told his story, got what money he wanted, and engaged passage on the Asia, from Liverpool to New York. We came over on the same steamer. That is how we came to know it. "'Where is Captain Grandiere now?' inquired Lee. "'In Washington, staying at the same hotel with us. You may judge our surprise.' and his triumph, when on reaching New York three days since, we learned that the blockade-runner, Argent, had been captured by the United States Man-of-War Eagle, and had been sent home as a prize, under the command of Lieutenant Force. We came down to Washington by the first train, I and my party, to see you and Roland, but Captain Grandier avowedly to prove Silver to be a pirate, and to hang him. "'Captain Grandier will now also be able to prove that young Roland Bayard was captured by the pirates at the same time that his ship, the Kitty, was taken, and he, the skipper, taken prisoner. Captain Grandier's evidence must vindicate Roland Bayard. "'Oh, if it only could. But, Uncle, if Roland will not deny that he was a volunteer member of the pirate crew. "'He will deny it, when he knows the pirate lied to him and deceived him, and has no claim whatever to his forbearance.' "'much less to his duty or affection,' said Mr. Force. "'It was growing late, and Mr. Force arose to go. "'Uncle,' said Lee, "'why cannot you and the Earl stay on board with me to-night? "'I can send a man with a note to the hotel "'to let the ladies know where you are, "'and I can make you up most comfortable berths in this cabin, "'and to-morrow we can all three go and breakfast with our friends,' pleaded the young man. "'Lee, my lad, I should like it extremely, "'but I cannot speak for Enderby,' replied the squire. I propose this, said the earl, that I return to the hotel to take care of the ladies, and prepare them for your reception in the morning, leaving you here, force, with your nephew. The earl's proposal was accepted by acclamation, and soon after he took his leave and was rowed ashore, leaving the uncle and nephew to spend the night together on the ship. CHAPTER 18, A TERRIBLE REVELATION "'We must wait until Franklin comes on board,' said Leonidas Force the next morning, as he stood beside Mr. Force, on the deck of the Argent, looking off toward the Navy Yard, where a boat had already been sent to bring out the young midshipman. "'Will he be punctual?' inquired Mr. Force, who was almost as impatient as his companion to be off to keep their appointment to breakfast with the ladies of the family at the hotel that morning. "'Punctual,' echoed Lee. "'His orders are to report on board at seven this morning, and he will be here on time.' Mr. Force took out his watch and looked at it. "'It wants twelve minutes to seven now,' he exclaimed. "'And here comes Franklin,' replied Lee, as the young midshipman was seen running across the yard down to the water's edge where the boat waited. As he jumped on board, the boat was seen to turn and head for the ship. In a few minutes it had crossed the water and come up alongside. Young Franklin sprang out and climbed up on deck.' Two minutes to seven. You are prompt, midshipman,' said Lee, smiling. "'I would rather be an hour too soon than a second too late, lieutenant,' replied the young officer, saluting. "'Quite right. Tell the coxswain to wait. He is to take this gentleman and myself ashore,' said Lee. Then he went down into his cabin, followed by Mr. Force, to make a few final preparations. Soon they returned to the deck, went down into the boat, and headed for the shore. When they landed, and were walking across the yard, Lee asked, I may at last marry Odalite, without let or hindrance? I have told you so, lad. Yes, bless you, uncle, but how soon? How soon? This very day, if Odalite and her mother agree. Let us walk faster, uncle, please, pleaded the impatient lover. My dear Lee, consider, consider my rheumatism. Besides, look, there is no car near the gate, and we shall pass through before one comes up. Lee saw at once that fast walking would not bring him any sooner to the side of his sweetheart, and so he moderated his haste. They reached the gate just as a car came up, and they entered it while the horses were being unharnessed and turned around. "'If one had but wings,' said Lee. "'You would find them inconvenient on most occasions,' replied Mr. Force. Several other passengers now entered the car, and it started on its uptown trip." Passengers from the sidewalks, however, continued to stop the car, and crowd in, until it was more than full, for every seat was occupied, and all the standing room between the rows, as well as both platforms before and behind. This was always the condition of the street-cars in war-times, when authorities were as careless of the lives of horses as they were of those of men. All private conversation was rendered impossible, and Mr. Force rode on in perfect silence, half suffocated by the close air, and heavily pressed upon by a crowd of men standing up in the middle, hanging on by the straps, and swaying to and fro against the forms of their fellow passengers. At last, long last, the ordeal was over. The toiling horses reached the corner of the street on which their hotel was situated, and Mr. Force pulled the strap to stop the car, and with his companion slowly pushed, elbowed, and worked his way out of the black hole into the open air. "'There is one comfort in this difficulty in getting out, though our clothes are often torn, and our flesh scratched or bruised in the trial, yet it gives the wretched horses a minute's rest,' said the squire. As followed by Lee, he made his way across the pavement to the lady's entrance of the house. Here a great shock met him. The earl, pale and grave, stood in the hall waiting for him. He bowed to Lee, and then took the arm of his brother-in-law, and said, "'Come with me, force.' Lieutenant, you will find the young ladies in the parlor. Lee, surprised and vaguely uneasy, hesitated for a moment and then ran upstairs. What is the meaning of this, Enderby? What has happened? Anxiously inquired the squire. Your wife is not well. She, she is ill. She is dangerously ill. Let me go to her. Let me go to her at once! Exclaimed the terrified husband, breaking from the earl's hold. No, no, I beg of you, it would be useless. She is sleeping. Two physicians and a nurse watch beside her, and they forbid all approach for the present. "'Come in here with me,' said the earl, drawing his brother-in-law into the nearest room, which happened to be a temporarily untenanted private parlor. "'When did this happen? Why was I not sent for at once? What is the nature of her illness?' "'Oh, my dear wife!' exclaimed the squire, as he fell rather than sat down upon the nearest chair. The earl closed the door and turned the key, and then answered, not an hour ago, they, Elfrida and her daughter, with Miss Hedge and myself, were in the drawing-room waiting for your arrival, before ordering breakfast. A servant brought in the morning paper, and Wynnette took it to read aloud for the benefit of the party. She turned first to the report of the examination of the two prisoners, Silver and Cloud, alias Stookley and Bayard, and of the demand of the British government for their extradition upon charge of piracy and slave-dealing. Good heaven! The demand was said to have come through the British consul at New York, who had been on the watch for the possible capture by our ships of this same pirate ship. Then old Grandier's word will come true. Probably, but as when read I happened to look at my sister, she had grown deadly pale. I arose to go to her, but she raised her hand with a gesture of command that stopped me, and she listened to the end of the reading, and then, with her wonderful self-control, deadly pale as she was, arose to leave the room. Wynnette had not observed the change in her mother, but Odalite and Elva had done so, and both of them sprang to her side. Her attack was so sudden and unaccountable. "'I understand, I understand,' muttered Mr. Force to himself. But she waved the girls back in the most peremptory manner and went alone to her room. The children came back to me and gazed in my face for an explanation. I could give them none. They once more started to follow their mother— but I called them back and told them to be patient. Then the condition of little Rosemary Hedge claimed attention. She was sobbing violently on the sofa. I told my nieces to respect their mother's wish to be left alone, that she was probably overcome by the ill news of one whom she had known from his boyhood, and that she would best recover her composure in solitude. "'I understand, I understand,' again murmured the poor squire to himself. I went to Rosemary and sought to soothe her. While I was so engaged, little Elva slipped away and went up to her mother's room, and instantly came shrieking back, telling us, in wild and incoherent exclamations, that her mother lay unconscious on the floor of her chamber. "'Gracious, gracious heavens!' groaned the squire. We hurried to her assistance, all of us, even Rosemary, who forgot her own grief at this crisis. We found her on the carpet in a deep swoon. She lay face downward, and dressed as if for a journey. By her side lay a travelling-bag, which seemed to have dropped from her hand as she fell. "'I understand, oh, I understand too well, too well,' muttered the squire to himself. "'We got her on the bed and sent for a doctor. There was one in the house, who heard of the event and came first. Then the doctor whom we had sent for arrived. They are with her now. One of them procured a professional nurse. And they are all three agreed upon one point, that no one but the doctor or nurse be allowed to enter the room.' "'But I must go to her door. I will not make the least noise, but I must go to the door and see one of the physicians,' said Mr. Force, rising. "'I will go with you,' said the earl. The two gentlemen left the room together, and went up two flights of stairs, to the floor on which was a suit of rooms occupied by the forces. They paused before the door of the chamber of illness, or it might be of death, and Mr. Force tapped very gently.' It was the nurse, a wholesome-looking, middle-aged woman, who answered the summons. "'I wish to see one of the physicians,' whispered Abel Force, in a voice that trembled with emotion. The woman stepped noiselessly back into the room, and was presently succeeded by Dr. Bolton, a large, fair, bald-headed man of about sixty years of age. He stepped out into the passage noiselessly, closing the door behind him. Then, in a whisper, he greeted Mr. Force, with whom he had been acquainted." How is my wife? he inquired, in breathless anxiety. End of chapter 18